0: Well, really all of my siblings and I, we each responded to the pressures of being a PK in different ways. I had one sister who responded in just outright, vivid, in-your-face rebellion. Um, For example, I remember one particular time when we were in high school, we were getting ready to go on a mission trip with our youth ministry. And our youth pastor made one very specific rule um, that nobody was allowed to dye their hair before we left for the mission trip because you just didn't want that to be a distraction and you just never knew what you were going to get with some of the particular individuals in our youth group. Well, my sister went out the very next day and dyed her hair. That's the kind of rebellious response she had to, uh, you know, the pressures put on us. And not that 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 was unique to being a PK, but that was her way of dealing with uh, authority, kind of the way her rebellion expressed itself. I was a little different. I was the one who like, on the surface, had it all together, but was devious and like secretly, uh, you know, getting into trouble, kind of maintaining like the double life thing, which is actually equally as dangerous, maybe even more so because you're kind of getting away with it for a period. And then it kind of caught up to me later in life. But either, either way, you know, there was just this, this rebellious spirit in us that kind of found its way out. And I would argue that all of us have that in us. It's really a part of being human. It's a part of the curse of the fall is that we don't really like listening to somebody else tell us what to do. We don't really want to have to obey anybody else. We don't want to be held accountable um, to somebody else's authority. And I would say that here in our country in a place like America where we have what we would refer to as inalienable rights, you know, we, I have my rights, it's even worse. Because we think that, you know, we, we celebrate our independence and, and uh, individuality so much here in our culture that it makes it even harder for us to appreciate and sometimes obey uh, authority. But the interesting thing is that as Christians, as as Peter would refer to us as exiles here on this earth, we are called to submit to God, to God himself. And as rebels, as people who have this innate uh, spirit that just doesn't want to have to obey and listen and, and respect authority, that can create a problem for us. And so last week we talked about how we as a church are a holy priesthood who exists to praise and proclaim God's worth. Praise God and proclaim his worth. And that was really kind of our responsibility in relation to who God is. Well, this week in, in the passage we're going to be at in 1 Peter 2, we are going to talk about our role is in relation to the world that we live in, the society at large. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you... Uh, don't have one. There's one there in, the, in front of the pew. Um, the, the, blue, the blue books are, are Bibles that you can flip to First Peter with me. Chapter two, we're going to be in verses 11 through 25. First Peter 2: 11 through 25. And as we read these verses, we're going to really wrestle with two questions. We're going to wrestle with the first question, How should Christians live in the world in relation to society? How should we live in this world? And then secondly, why should we live this way? How should we live and why should we live this way? And I'm going to pray uh, for us as we, before we read together and then uh, we'll get, get into the text. So let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for the chance to be here uh, again this week to, to worship you and song, to worship you in, in reading your word and, and, and listening to you speak to us during this time. We pray that your spirit would be here uh, during the next 25 minutes or so, and and, and as we we read your word, we ask that you would direct us to yourself, that you would call us to you, that our hearts would be in tune with who you are and what you desire for us. God, we ask that you would um, give us willing spirits, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, that we would be responsive to this truth that we look at today, Lord, and we thank you for this, this awesome opportunity we have to, to join with some of our brothers and sisters as they proclaim their faith publicly in baptism today, and we just ask that you would um, just really bless this service and be with us. We want you to be here. We need you to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, and, and usually. Uh, I like to read the whole passage today. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to probably be a little better for us to kind of read a few verses at a time, talk about them, and then read a few verses. So rather than have you stand like five times, we're just going to stay seated as we read. So 1 Peter 2, uh, we're going to read verses 11 and 12 first. It says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in these verses, Peter kind of switches gears. He's been talking about who we are, kind of our identity as a church, and then he's going to spend the next couple of chapters giving us some instruction, what what that looks like, how we're supposed to live that out. And these two verses are really kind of a summary of everything we're going to read over the next couple chapters, over the next few weeks, as we work our way through the rest of the book. But in these two verses, Peter reminds us who we are, addressing us as beloved. He addresses us as sojourners and exiles, so that we'll remember that our true citizenship is not in the nation that we live on the earth, but in the the kingdom of God. That's where our true identity, our allegiance belongs. And then he gives us two commands, one positive, one negative. Actually, he says those in reverse, negative and then positive. He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That can mean a lot of things, but at the the root of it, it's that, what we talked about earlier, that core thing in us that doesn't want to have to listen to anybody else. We want to just do whatever feels good and whatever we want to do, that rebellious nature that we have. He's saying... Listen, abstain from that. Don't obey that. Don't listen to that. And then he gives us a reason. He says that it wages war against our soul. It wages war against your soul. So what he's saying is that voice in your head, that gut that you have, that you are so prone to listen to, don't do that. Because if you follow that, you're going to get in trouble. Because it's, it's going to ultimately betray you and it's going to destroy you. Be careful. Be careful. And then he tells us positively, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And his point really is just make sure that you live a life that is in line with who you are. As you you live in society, as you live among your neighbors, live in such a way that is becoming to your Savior. And why does he say that? He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice he says, when they speak against you. He's honest about the fact that for, for them especially, but even for us any believers of any age, we are going to be spoken against for our faith. And he says that when, when we do that, if we have this honorable life, if we have a life that is above reproach, people will end up seeing that and then they will glorify God. So, our best defense, our best apologetic. Right now we're going through a series in our adult teaching called Truth and Love and it's it's really on apologetics, making making a defense of our faith, knowing how to 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 engage with people on matters of faith. Peter right here has told us that our lifestyle is our biggest apologetic. The way that we live gives the biggest credibility to our message, gives the biggest defense of who we are and what we claim to believe. And so basically the point he's really getting at is if you don't have anything that you're doing that's inappropriate, if you don't have anything that people can, can fault you for, then their accusations and their attacks, they're just going to fall to the ground. They're going to they're be empty. And what I believe Peter's teaching us here, I, I said the first question we'd be wrestling with is how should Christians live in the world? The first answer is Peter is teaching us that we should abstain from sin and live honorably for our Savior's sake. Abstain from sin and live honorably for our Savior's sake. Let's look at the next few verses, verses 13 through 17. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So Peter, in this section, he moves away from these general instructions to us about life into a very specific calling that we have towards civil authority, things like government and the police, and, and the 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 earthly uh, institutions that we that we are held accountable by in our society. I mean, we don't have an emperor, but we have a president. We do have a governor. He uses that word, but we have all kinds of people that God has placed in authority over us in the the place that we live, and it's instruction to us is to be subject to every human institution. And he gives us a reason though. He says, do this for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Once again, what he's most concerned about is how our lives either give credibility and and honor the gospel or how they would have have a you know, a staining effect on it, how they would speak negatively of it. That's what he's most concerned with. And he's saying how we submit to our earthly authority is really an act of worship to our Heavenly Father. So the principle being, if we have a problem submitting to those that we can see, it reveals that we have a problem submitting to the one that we don't see. So our visible earthly submission is actually indicative of whether we are spiritually submitted to our Father. and So then he he moves on to explain that God has actually given a, a specific purpose for government, for authority, for civil institutions. It says that they are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So what we can take away from that is God has actually instilled civil authority, government, these kinds of things to uphold justice and morality. That's what he wants them to do. Now, we know that there are, have been places and times throughout history, including the one that our friends back in, in Peter's day were in, that didn't do this well. They didn't, they didn't fulfill that role quite like God wanted them to or intended them to do, but that's why they were there. That's why they were put in place. And he says in Romans 13, the the passage that Carissa read earlier, that God establishes all earthly authority. It's all sovereignly put together by him. And so that's why we are called to submit to them, because ultimately we're submitting to God when we do that. And then in verse 15, look at that again. It says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So according to Peter, the way that we obey or not the authorities that we're placed under will will affect our Christian witness. He says here that when we do obey and when we do honor that and when we live in such a way in our neighborhoods and in our communities where we are good citizens... It silences claims against Christianity. Think about it this way a lot of people like to say that we, as the church, are a group of hypocrites. Like to say that we claim one thing and we live another way. And what he's saying was if you just claim the thing that you claim and also live that out, then people can't bring those charges against you. It doesn't change the fact whether it's true, whether our, our lives don't, I mean, it's true regardless of how we do, how we live, but when we live in light of it, it makes it more um, appealing to people. It makes it more uh, defensible to them. And then look at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is really important for us to to focus on this verse for a little bit. This has a lot of implications for us as believers. I think a lot of us think that the gospel sets us free and what we what we take that to mean. I mean, it does set us free, but we, th- we think that that means that we're just free to live however we want. We kind of use that as a license to, you know, take whatever area that we kind of struggle with and be like, well, it's okay because, you know, I'm free. I'm set free. I'm liberated. I have, you know, this doesn't change my ultimate standing before God, so I'm free, but he doesn't say that our freedom is for anything. It says here that we are free not to live as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So it's really important for us to understand that our Christian liberty is a freedom to be what God actually created us to be in the first place. It's a freedom from this rebellious spirit that we all are inherit, you know, inherit from, our, from the fall. It's a freedom from this bondage that we have to, really, Satan. So he's freed us up, not just to have freedom in our terms, but freedom to be who he created us to be in the first place, to live for him. And then in verse 17, he gives us four really clear commands. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to talk about them briefly. Honor everyone. Treat all people with respect. Love the brotherhood. And he's talking about the church. He's saying we are to have an affinity, an affection, a care for one another as believers in Christ that is even greater than that respect that we have for all people. Then he says to fear God. To fear God. He's the one that we should care most about, the one that we really want to honor with our lives. And then finally, honor the emperor, which is kind of back to that first thing. Like he said, honor every honor everyone, honor the emperor, and that's really freeing. I think that's really freeing because there are going to be times in our lives when we're under authority that we don't like, and he's not saying that we have to like them, he's not saying that we have to agree with them, but he is saying that we're called to honor them. And I want to talk a little bit about how this plays out for us in 2013 here. First of all, it means that it doesn't matter who it is, we're called to respect everyone. So the question in our mind, when we think about how we're supposed to interact with people, and think right now, I want to challenge us, think of the person that gets on your very last nerve. Maybe it's somebody at your office, at your school. Maybe it's a family member. Eh, Sometimes that's the case. Think of that person and what God wants us to do, what I believe he's calling us to do when he says to honor everyone. You think of that person. He wants us to always be asking the question, how does God want me to treat this person? What is God's desire for my heart to be towards this person? Because it's it's true of all people, but for us, there's usually one or two people that it's really, really hard. Maybe they rub you the wrong way. Thinking about that question, how does God want me to treat them? But secondly, what's really important for us today is to realize that we are called to honor and respect the authority that is over us. And right now, we live in a time, I would say, I mean, it's not unique in history, but it's a time for our country where it is really hard to honor and respect some of the authorities that are in place over us. I mean, our government is a mess right now. But regardless of what we think of them, regardless if we agree with the decisions that they make, we have an unmistakable call from our Father God to honor them. We don't have to agree with them, but we have to disagree in a way that is respectful. And this week I posted it, I don't know if any of you saw it, on our Facebook page I shared an article by a guy, um, Ed Stetzer. He wrote an article called, Politics, Social Media, and More Important Things. And basically he kind of made a few points. The two points that I thought were really, really good and they're, they're very pertinent to this discussion. He said, first of all, that how, we banter about politics, especially on social media. So what we post on Facebook, what we post on Twitter, or any public account that we have, it's important for us to think about how we do that because what happens a lot of times is we can create barriers between us and people who don't agree with us who we are called to love and share the gospel with. And he went on to say a bunch of stuff about how like most people who aren't believers are Democrats and most people who claim to be believers are Republicans and blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's really that much the point, but I think that the the core thing that he was talking about where we may think that we have this, or we, we do have this right to free speech, but what he's saying is maybe it would be better for us to curb that for the sake of the gospel, to curb that for the sake of the impression that people who are outside the community of faith have of us who are inside it. And so he goes on in the, in the article and he said, like I said before, maybe, maybe the call for us is to lay down this freedom of speech that we have in order to engage in the mission of God. And I thought that, that was really beautifully put, very simply put. And I think that that is one of the things that this passage is kind of getting at. It's saying the way that you interact with your authority, first of all, reveals how you are in your heart towards your ultimate authority. But secondly, people are watching. and, And it's more important that, for the sake of the gospel, we restrict ourselves at times, even though it wouldn't necessarily be wrong for us to express our opinion. We just have to be careful how we do it. And so my point is not that you need to, like, never post anything political in your life ever again on social media. But just be very careful how you do it. Be very careful how you do it. I mean, there's so many times when in my news feed, and it's you, thankfully it's nobody in our church. I'll be honest; you're all off the hook on this one. Um, there are so many times when it's just like just slanderous, belligerent, ridiculous comments that I'm just like, I just want to mute this person and like not ever hear this again because it's just horrible. Some of the tone that you see that people have, and just remember that like when. When people read what we post, we're already attached to Christ and there, there's just this implicit thing where, where everything we do, everything we say reflects on him and we don't want to ever reflect poorly on our savior or the gospel. So let's be careful how we interact. I mean, really, we should analyze and really think about how all of our behavior and all of our speech reflects on our Lord. So the second part for that first question, how should we live in the world, we are called, according to this text, to submit to our civil authority for the Savior's sake. Submit to our civil authority for the Savior's sake. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Thankfully, in our day and age, we are not slaves. And we don't have a direct parallel in our lives for this specific passage. I think The closest thing we have would be the workplace or situations where we are being persecuted or suffering some sort of affliction. But I'm I'm guessing that as I read those verses, there's at least a couple of you in this room that are probably asking, why doesn't Peter speak out against slavery? Is the Bible condoning it? I don't have time, and you guys don't want to be here till 3 in the afternoon. We could talk about that for a long time. But I do just want to say a couple of things about that. First of all, we need to understand that slavery in this day and age was different than slavery in our day and age. I'm not saying it was good. I'm not condoning it. I'm not giving them a hall pass. But it was different. People actually in Bible times, in and, and the time of this writing, they would actually sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts. It was, it was just a different thing. It was a very prevalent thing. And also, within that, there was a wide range of the way tr- people treated their slaves. There was certainly injustice and horrible things happening, but there were also people who had slaves that treated them like family, almost. And so there was this wide, wide range. And secondly, and this is, this is really important for us to, to, to understand, in their day, they didn't live in a democracy. They didn't live in a country like ours where... You could just stand up for your rights and, and do, do things that would fight for justice. They were, depending on where you, where you date this book, living under the oppression of Nero or some other oppressive dictator-like emperor. So they didn't have the same opportunity to influence change that, that other people throughout history have had. And finally... The context of this passage is not, if you, if you read these verses in light of what he's doing before this and what he's going to do after this, is the concern of Peter in these verses is how Christians are going to live within society at large and how they're going to be able to uphold and kind of honor the social order of their day and how their witness was going to impact all of that. And so he's most concerned with what are you doing, how are you living your life, and how is it impacting the gospel? Because this is back when the church had just started out. People thought they were this weird band of you know, cult, like cultish-type group, and he wanted to make sure that they didn't discredit their, their claims, um, you know, their belief in Christ by the way that they lived. Now, it doesn't answer all of the questions, but my point is that that's just, Peter's not addressing, like, is slavery right or wrong? That's not what he's talking about in these verses. He's saying, here's how I want us to interact in this, in this specific sphere, in this way. And then, now I want to look at the verses a little bit, now that we've talked about that briefly. He starts out by addressing the servants directly. And that's really important for us to see, because in their day and age, nobody else would ever address a servant directly. They did not give them that honor, or or, uh, they didn't even acknowledge the fact that they had freedom enough to be, be addressed that way. So he's already giving more dignity to them as free moral agents. And then he tells them to be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust. Acknowledging the reality, yes, there are some that are very unjust. And then he gives the reason. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So what he's getting at is there's injustice out there. There, There's no doubt about it. Some of you are living in situations that are not right. They are not fair but you have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in the way that you submit and you endure and you go through that because God will use that. And he reminds them that God is aware of your plight. He's aware of the struggle and he will be pleased by how you go through it. That's why he tells them the key to this is being mindful of God, trusting that he knows, he sees, and he cares about what you're going through. Now, I think that this... this, the closest application we have for us today is our workplace. You know, because thankfully, we don't live in a country where we're suffering persecution like some of our brothers and sisters around the world. there There are people right this very morning that are being thrown in jail and being beaten for the sake of just claiming the name of Christ. We don't live in a place, by God's grace, thankfully, that we have to worry about that. But there are times in our culture where when we take a stand for Christ and we are bold for Him, that we are ridiculed and we are really made fun of. And it's, it's, it's not near the same. I'm not even claiming that. But there will be times when we take a stand and we have people who are really out, out for us just because of what we believe. And He's telling us that in those situations, when we don't react and when we don't fly off the handle, when we conduct ourselves in a way that is submitted to the Lord and we entrust ourselves to Him, and we're more more concerned with the gospel than being right in that situation or, or defending ourselves, that is honoring to God. I think it's also important here that we see that even our bosses that we work for, God has placed an authority over us, that He's sovereign over that. And so even the way that we work under them has implications of where our heart is with God and and for the gospel as well. And So according to these verses, I think the answer to our question of how should Christians live in the world is we should live submitted in the workplace for our Savior's sake. Submit in the workplace for the Savior's sake. So that's in relation to coworkers, in relation to our boss, just living in a way where we don't feel like we have to go and defend ourselves. We'll be willing to go through difficulty We'll be willing to be made fun of whatever for the sake of the gospel. Trusting that God will take care of it in the end. In the last verses of this passage, this is a whole lot to cover this morning. Thank you all for hanging with me. We're almost there. The last few verses are the most important verses in the whole passage. Read verses 21 through 25 with me. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reveled, he did not revel in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he says, "For this have you, you have been called." And then when you look back at verse twenty. He said, "When you sin, if, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God." We've been called to suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's our calling. And in these verses that follow, Peter does something that was a first-time thing. He identified directly, explicitly, Christ as the suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 53, of the verses that we read earlier this morning. So our calling is specifically tied to Christ. We're called to suffer for righteousness because he he suffered for righteousness. And how did he suffer? Look at verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reveled, he did not revel in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you think back to Jesus' arrest, his trial, when they mocked him and they beat him and they accused him of all kinds of things, the crazy thing about it is he was not only innocent in regard to the things they were charging him of, he was actually truly innocent, period. The only person who's ever been attacked who had literally a completely clean record. And yet, even though he was suffering uh, unjustly, he did not attack or respond in anger. He didn't bend the truth. He didn't try to twist his way out of it but he submitted himself to it. And how was that possible? Like it said there in the text, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted his father. He rested in the fact that he knew that his father is good, that our God is in control, and he knew that his suffering would somehow end in glory. He knew that God was going to somehow redeem all of the difficulty that he was going through, that it was not going to end here, but there was something waiting on the other side. He trusted God. And then look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is really, really important. This verse right here is some of the most clear teaching on what happened in the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took your sin and he took my sin and he bore that for us. So he wasn't just an example for us. He wasn't just, you know, doing something that was, you know, sacrificial in some some nice way. I mean, it was in very essence, he was taking our place there. All of your sin, all of my sin was laid on him, every bit of it. And he bore that for us. He died on, in the cro- on the cross in our place so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that we might be set free from the bondage that we were under as a, as a result of the fall. That we might have a, even the opportunity to live out what he's telling us to do in the previous verses. He's saying this is only possible because Christ has even made it possible. He has set you free. By his wounds we have been healed. His suffering brought salvation for us. His death brings life. And then verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As a result of all of that, we were estranged from God because of our sin, and we've been brought near. We've been reconciled because of who Christ is and what he's done. And now we're called to suffer because Jesus suffered. We're called to follow in his footsteps. Think about it. Whenever he called his disciples, the first two words out of his mouth to each one of them, follow me, he says the same thing to us. And the follow me that we're given involves suffering. It's part of what it means to be a disciple. If we want to be raised with him, we first have to suffer with him. If we want to live with him, we first got to die like he did. God, in his infinite wisdom, has made it such that glory is only found on the other side of suffering. It's the way the world works. Life comes from death. It's the way that it worked with Jesus. It's the way that it works with us. When we recognize that God isn't trying to lead us away from pain and suffering but that it's part of his plan. It's part of his his process of making us like his son and using our lives to testify of his glory. God uses that to transform us, and he uses that to change others. So the answer to the question, why should we live this way, is because the Savior suffered for our sake. We should live the way that he's laid out for us because the Savior suffered for our sake. So if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ, if all of this to you is something you go, yeah, that sounds great, I've just never done that. If you've never come to a place where you acknowledge that you need Christ's sacrifice, that you need the forgiveness that comes only through his life, death, and resurrection, you can confess to God that you're a sinner. You can acknowledge that Christ's death on the cross in your place has made the way for you to be forgiven and reconciled to God, and you can be reconciled to him. You can call out to Jesus today and be forgiven and be saved. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do so. Don't wait. Today is as good a day as any. Let's pray.